welcome to the Howardsville Gospel Chapel podcast. Be sure to check us out on the web at howardsvillegospelchapel.com. Thanks for visiting and enjoy the message. This morning we're going to direct our attention back to the book of Titus as we begin our message again. Gonna, we started the book of Titus back, oh, in uh, November or maybe a little before that, and then we've been interrupted by some of our special services that we've had, uh, but we will close out 2019 in Titus and close out chapter 1 in Titus as well. I'm in Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. But for our purpose today, I'm going to jump back and begin reading at Titus chapter 1, verse 5, just to grab some of the context of the verses which we'll be studying today. Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching." So that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, and for this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Let's pray, and then we'll look at these verses this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to sing, the opportunity to hear the specials this morning, and to be blessed and have our hearts touched uh, by the wonderful music, but the point of those to draw our attention to you, your birth, uh, coming as a Savior, giving us the opportunity to live life with you and for you. Lord, as we look at the passage this morning, as we consider the end of the year and the opportunities coming up next year, we pray that you would uh, just uh, direct the words and the thoughts that I have, help our hearts to be prepared and open to what uh, you desire to teach and instruct us through your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 
in your bulletins, you'll find some notes, and uh, you might find on the back of the notes that as our kids don't have children's church this morning, uh, there is a little activity for them to work on. And children, if you already did that, or if you're looking at your parents' notes and realizing that they already did it for you, uh, there is probably a few more bulletins back there. This morning, as we begin again looking at Titus here, we've got to get ourselves a little bit of the background of the book where we started um, a couple months ago. The Titus is written to the churches there in Crete, and Paul was with Titus at the time evangelizing uh, those churches. Some were established, believers were there in the city and in the multiple cities. Churches were begun, but then Paul and Titus had to remove themselves from it. And so the purpose of the letter here to the churches was particularly for Titus to remind him of what his goal was and to give him a little bit of of gusto behind him in his work. And his purpose was to go there to set in order that which was still remaining. And in saying that, his purpose was to establish leadership within the churches there in Crete, so that they would be independent on their own, able to hold to what is true, and to continue to grow and develop and disciple believers in the towns and in their locations. And so Titus's job was to establish qualified spiritual leaders for that church. We read some of the verses there in verses 5 through 9, describing what the qualified spiritual leaders would look like in the church. And then we also read in verse 10 and following the reason that those leaders needed to be put in place. There were false teachers, there were false ideas, there was false doctrine that was both present there in Crete and present in uh, the, the world at that time, which would influence and lead others away from the truth. And that would, uh, down in verse 14, the end of that verse 14 describes how some of these teachings would turn people away from the truth, from what was true, right, and mattered. And so as we jump now into verses 10 through 16, we're taking a look at what it means and why there was a great reason for spiritual leaders to be established, to hold firm to the truth, and to help teach, and uh, as well as to oppose false teaching within the church. Now, this morning, uh, you may have noticed as well that the title is Purely Motivated Resolutions, and so sometime, I, I'm not totally ignoring the time of year that it is, I'm going to try to work in the fact of, of resolutions into this message, and I, I don't believe it's a stretch, and so you'll have to hear me out, and you can tell me later if I th- you think I stretched a little bit here. But what would this topic that we're going to discuss, false teachers, have anything to do with resolutions? As we work through this text, we're going to see uh, some of the problems with uh, what I wrote down as de facto leaders, leaders who are established, established themselves, and they have not the qualifications that Titus desired or needed or that the Lord desired out of leaders within a church. And even as we've read these verses, as noted that there will be uh, particular differences that make them unqualified, actually, to be leaders. But as we work our way through the text, we'll see that the, uh, the end reality is that the substance of their teaching 
may not be inherently wrong, but the motives behind it are. The motives with which these teachers were teaching the truths and the commandments and the myths that they were getting into, they were improperly motivated, and that made it a threat to the church. And so keeping, as we think about this time of year, we're going to have opportunities. Many of you might do them. Maybe some of you forget the idea totally about resolutions and ideas for something new in the new year. But if you do, then there's opportunities to make changes and have new desires, to reevaluate a year gone by and how we've been and look forward to certain improvements that we want to see made in our own lives or in others. They might be improvements or resolutions on physical areas, educational areas. They might involve dietary, social, spiritual. We could go on. But in the broader sense, there's a truth underlying in this passage about motivations for anything that we do, whether it's resolutions, which may be something that we're thinking about this week, or in any area. Motivations find themselves so key in a believer's life. And so we're going to work our way through this passage looking at the false teachers, at their motivations, at their teaching, where it led, and then we're going to get ourselves to verses 15 and 16 and think about what are purely motivated resolutions, decisions, or actions. Let's begin with the controversy that resided here within the church. And that's important to note that this is taking place within the churches themselves. These are leaders that have arisen in the church. Uh, these are leaders that, though not set up by Titus and not qualified as the verses prior would describe them, these leaders are within the church, have influence in the church, and will be called that their rebuke against them will hopefully bring them back to the truth. These were self-made leaders that were upsetting the church with their teachings, looking at verses 10 and 11 again. There are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially of those, the, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. In the absence of the leadership that was needed, thus the reason Titus was there to set up leaders at that church, in the absence of that leadership, others were assuming and stepping into a role of leadership within the church that were both disqualified as well as veering away from the truth. Now there's a principle here that we could stop on and we won't take much time to, but it would be, I think, could be suggested that the lack of leadership in any setting opens up a vacuum which will inevitably be filled. And that is true in churches, that is true in families. There is leadership and order that God has sustained and desired in the world, in governments, in families. And when there is not leadership stepping up in those roles, that vacuum causes both detriment to that family or that government or that institution, 
and it will also be filled somehow. Here in this church, it was filled with those maybe who had the loudest voices or those who had maybe some new ideas. As we look at verse 10, we're not given names specifically by Paul, and it's good for us to remember that this letter was directed to a specific set of people, and they wouldn't have had to wonder who it was they were talking about. They would have known who it was that Paul was referring to and what type of teaching it was that Paul was referring to. For us, the best clue is that we have is that they are especially those of the circumcision. So during that time in the church, there was still a, a wrestling of understanding between the Jewish people with this Savior, the Messiah coming, and their Old Testament faith, as well with how the Gentiles were being brought into the church and how their, the backgrounds of the Gentiles were going to be different than the backgrounds of the Jews and how, how does that all, all mold together and fit together. And so there were definitely some challenges within the church. And here, those teachers that seem to be stepping forward are either especially or only Jewish teachers or primarily Jewish teachers. They're bringing in some of their background, some of their teaching, some of their myths, and, and some of their, uh, if we were to turn back to the latter portion of this letter, we would see maybe genealogies and certain commandments that were required in the Jewish faith that were being brought over into the new faith, into the Christianity, into what uh, Christ established and what the apostles were teaching. There's not a great deal of clarity as to specifically what the teaching was, but as they brought it in, it was definitely disturbing and it was setting up problems, maybe requirements and expectations for the faith that the apostles had not taught, that Jesus had not taught himself. So we think about what that might have looked like, I'm turning to Mark chapter 7, and this is as Jesus addressing the Pharisees, maybe giving us an idea of, of what some of the traditions and teachings that the Jewish teachers might have been bringing into the churches at Crete. Mark chapter 7, it says, The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him, that's Jesus, and when they had come from Jerusalem and had set, seen some of the disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, and that is unwashed. And here for helping us understand that a little better, Mark gives us a description for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. So the Pharisees and scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandments of God, you hold to the traditions of men. He was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. And so we could continue on, and, and if you'd 
to, uh, I would suggest you continue reading in Mark chapter 7, but that gives us a sense of what kind of traditions, what kind of teachings, what kind of expectations may have been brought in by those of the circumcision, those of the Jewish faith into the church. And Paul says this needs to be addressed. These men, he describes them in verse 10 as rebellious and empty talkers and deceivers. They are upsetting whole families, upsetting them in the senses later we've already described. They're turning them away from the truth of what matters, and that's just exactly what Jesus leveled the claim at the Pharisees there in Mark chapter 7. They were good at observing these traditions of men, but they had missed the truth of what the commandments were supposed to be teaching and directing men towards, which was godliness and a relationship with him. So their actions, the actions of the teachers, that their teaching itself was reprehensible and it required stern correction. And Paul was, was very clear. He, he didn't mince any words as he described how Titus should confront them and how the leaders, the appropriate leaders that would be set up in verses 5 through 9, should deal with this kind of false teaching, these kind of false expectations that were being brought into the church. So we have here in verse 11, they must be silenced so that they will no longer upset the whole church. He tells them to address it quickly, telling them to cease and be silent, not teaching the things that they were teaching. He draws for them a a parallel of these false teachers in verse 12 and says, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now, if we as Americans were to travel around the world, we would find out that the world has an opinion of Americans as well that we might not always be happy about. Well, the Cretans, the people of Crete, there was an opinion that was around the world at that time of them as exactly what... Paul does, quoting from one of their own prophets or teachers, liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. There was reasons for that. If you want to dive into it, you could do more study. Nonetheless, that reputation preceded them. They even, there was even a word, I believe it was like to cretize, which meant to be a liar, which was demeaning name to, for someone, based on the reputation of the Cretes. Well, what Paul does, and if any Cretans probably said that's ridiculous, they were offended by it, just like if you heard what some other people thought about Americans, you might be offended and say, that's not me. Well, they probably felt the same way. But Paul levels that claim at these false teachers saying they are exactly like that. They're exactly like the reputation that, that, that the Cretans had. And that may have been even a double insult for the Jewish people who seem to have a feelings of superiority to be leveled the claim that they are just like the people on the island that they live with. Paul calls for a stern rebuke. He calls them to be really laying it all out there for their teaching to be silent east. The reason is because there were such great consequences attached with the idea of adding something to the faith. The big problem that the Jewish controversy had brought into the early church was salvation plus. 
Salvation plus this equals righteousness. And that was not the message that was given by Christ. It was not the message that came through salvation by the resurrected Savior. The salvation of faith that washes and cleanses one free from sin. It was not salvation plus because the plus couldn't do anything. It was understood and Paul had taught wherever he went that the law was insufficient in its ability to save a person. That a person's unrighteousness could not ever be covered or masked by any number of attempted righteous deeds. And so, for them to be bringing in this teaching into this church required that there be leaders that step up, just as verse 9 said, that would hold fast to the faithful word, that they would be able to exhort in sound doctrine, teach what is right, and be able to refute those who hold error. Titus needed to set up that leadership. The leadership needed to step up and stand for what was true because the consequences were to cause people to stray from the truth of their salvation and even to hold false ideas about how they could have either a relationship with the Lord or have a closer relationship with the Lord. There would be some superiority for those that could attain to some level of righteousness or doing certain deeds to be righteous. That was not in keeping with the equal footing that was required to stand before the cross and cast the faith and dependence on Jesus as a Savior. So it had to be addressed. But it sets up an interesting statement that follows in verse 15 because we have often thought of and, and do think of the fact that the Old Testament law was done away with, just as we described it. But in some sense, we have to ask ourselves, was the doing away of the law, calling that law morally incompatible with righteousness? When the Old Testament law was done away with, did that make that everything done in the Old Testament law actually morally incorrect? And it's an interesting thing, something that I was reflecting on this week a little bit, and wondering what kind of laws might they brought in? What kind of things might have these teachers been, uh, been bringing into the church? We, we don't know for specifics. We don't, we're not given those. But what are some ideas? Other areas that might have been brought in, dietary restrictions were brought in by the Jewish uh, false teachers into the church. Certain Sabbath day adherences, you know, keeping to certain special days, that was brought in. Uh, and circumcision was brought in. Some said you couldn't even be a believer unless you went through the Jewish rite of circumcision. So some of these ideas and many more could have been brought in. Now that they were done away with, did that make them inherently wrong? It's interesting. I would say probably not, because as we look through the New Testament, we look at Romans chapter 14, which is where they deal with one of those issues, 
One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. He who eats does so for the Lord. He who gives thanks to God and he who does not eat for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to the Lord. Paul in Romans kind of says, well, there's many days. You could observe all days, you could observe no days, but the point is to observe them for the Lord, and the one who observes them as such must be fully convinced of that. In Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council had to decide what the people were teaching that those needed, that believers must have been circumcised so that all the Gentiles would have had to go through that Jewish right to actually be a believer. And they had to deal with that, but at the end they came up with some interesting uh, description to pass on to the churches and what they uh, said there in uh, Acts chapter 15 and verse 29, they pass on to the churches, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden upon you than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to an idols, from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. So at the same time that the Jewish council said, you know, it's you're Certain things are not, these things are not required for salvation, but you would do well, you would be wise to abstain from eating certain things offered to idols and etc. as that passage goes on. In Acts chapter 18, we actually find out that Paul takes a vow, probably a Nazarite vow, after he is a believer. He takes what would be a Jewish vow and does so in worship to the Lord. So, it leads us to an interesting lesson or an interesting question as to one that maybe Paul answers for us in the following verses, in verses 15 and 16. The Jewish teachers might have been adding salvation plus, Paul is saying that detracts from the truth. But, what about doing certain things for the Lord? What about doing these actions for him? draws us to the question of the priority of motivations in actions. And so here we are in verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed." This verse says that pure actions flow from a pure heart. Pure actions flow from a pure heart. We might say, to the pure of heart, nothing is impure. That's an interesting statement to reflect on. I've thought about that a lot this week. If we were to try to take that thought to the extreme, that the pure, to the pure of heart, nothing is impure. If we try to take that to, the, to its greatest extreme and say, if I could have a pure heart, then could I actually do sinful things purely? Now, if we try to take that to its absolute extreme, I think we've already failed in the first premise to have a pure heart. But in its principle it would state that motivation is priority 
in action and in life. Why we do what we do matters. For that sake, uh, I turn over to, um, I believe it's Matthew chapter 6, Jesus' discussion about fasting. Matthew chapter 6 starts with verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before men, hitting to motivation. If we go back to Titus and we say, what is the motivation of these teachers? Well, Paul already reveals that their motivation is sordid gain. They're looking for something that's going to make themselves better in their teaching, whether it's priority, whether it's power, whether maybe even they were charging some sense or, or making people have profiting off of it, whatever. Verse 16 describes the topic of fasting. When you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Pure actions flow from a pure heart, and in the example of fasting, Jesus says, when you fast, fasting is a good thing if you do it for the right reasons. If you fast so that everybody will know that you're fasting in a way that they might think you're super spiritual, then that fasting's worthless. But if you fast in a way that's wholly devoted unto the Lord, even in the sense of keeping it to yourself and between yourself and the Lord, then that fasting has pure actions, pure benefit. We'll take that into some of the things that the uh, teachers were bringing in. They themselves may not have totally been in error, suggesting to avoid certain meats or suggesting to do certain things to stay pure or to do it to be devoted unto the Lord. Those things may not have been totally in error, but the question was the motivation about why they were doing it. So while pure actions flow from a pure heart, seemingly pure actions can be spoiled by impure motivations. Again, the illustration of fasting and Jesus' own words work very well there. If fasting has a benefit for believers at certain times in their lives as they draw close to the Lord or seeking answers or instruction from Him, fasting has a purpose at a time. It can also serve an absolutely worthless purpose if it's done for the wrong reason. And you could add that into anything. You could add that into church attendance. You could add that into prayer life. You could add that into devotional life. 
You could add that into any new number of areas that we call spiritual, that we would call pure actions, and realize that in the impurity of our motivations and desires, we've turned something that would be seemingly so good into something that actually, well, let's keep reading in Titus. They profess to know God, maybe even they profess to do something pure, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deeds. The false teachers, in their desire for sordid gain, in their desire for personal gain through their teaching, and whatever that desire or whatever that gain was not, doesn't really matter, their motivations were revealed in the reason for why they were seeking to teach the individuals in that church. And as their motivations were revealed, it was revealed then as well that their teaching was totally worthless. Though they would profess to know God, profess to know maybe Him even closer than others because of A and B and whatever else. They'd proven from their heart that they had no knowledge of God at all. How do we seek to apply this situation? And not just apply it in everywhere, but especially this week as we close out a year and consider new opportunities that lie ahead. Reflect on who we've been in 2019, who we desire to be in 2020. Again, not all of you may make resolutions. Maybe some of you do. Maybe some of you thought that I think that's a bunch of hogwash that just fades out in a week anyways. But whether or not, it's nothing wrong with taking evaluation of where we are and who we are. And often we make that evaluation followed by resolutions to improve. But I would suggest whether it's resolutions or just decisions to improve your life, their value and benefit to you will lie in their motivations more so than in their decision. Much like the religious actions required by the Judaizers may have had some value to those who would go into them for the right reason, but it may have had absolutely worthless value to those who were motivated by improper reasons. So this year, uh, if we plan to possibly eat healthier, if you make a resolution this year to eat healthier, it's not a bad resolution. But why would we make that? If the motivation to eat healthier in 2020 is so that we can look down upon those like myself who have a tendency to gravitate towards junk food, then that's a worthless resolution. It may have some benefit, but the motivation is all wrong. What if we decide to add an exercise routine to our life? There's nothing wrong with exercise. Paul even said it, it profiteth some. But what if the only reason we decide to add some sort of exercise routine to our life is that we can 
flaunt ourselves on social media and get more likes. I think those days are past for me, but anyways, I could see it as a motivation. Well, that's just worthless. What's the right reason for that? Are we going to read more books? Another good resolution, a good decision. But is that simply so that we can make ourselves look better in the eyes of others so that we would have more wit and more knowledge to dominate conversations? Well, and that's worthless too. Are we going to, maybe even better resolutions to go after, are we going to read our Bible and pray more in 2020? I'd like to try to get a poll as to who thinks that's a bad idea. Are you going to try to grow spiritually? Read your Bible and pray more in 2020. But what if the only reason is because we hope to gain greater favor from the Lord. Or so that we might leverage him to answer our prayers more and give us better blessings. We would take something that would be so pure and so seemingly spiritual and even be able to distort that. Now that's, my hope is not to take the fun out of resolutions this year, if that's something that you enjoy doing. My hope is simply that we would consider why we do what we do. In the same sense that the Jewish believers had to come to grips with, why are we going to do what we do? Why are we going to continue to abstain from eating? What will be the purpose? It won't make us righteous but it may give us an opportunity to serve the Lord. And we can do it in worship for him. Many other things had to be wrestled through, worked through within the church. But why we do what we do is an important thing to consider, especially at this time of year. Especially when we consider how we might make improvements to ourselves in a new year. And why? What is the basis for those improvements. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that uh, we are not the only Christians in history who have struggled to consider why we do what we do and who have wrestled with whether or not our activities even done for you and in your name have any true merit or value in our lives spiritually. Lord, we pray that uh, as we enter into a new year, new years often new things give us time to reflect on old things and old habits and old ways and inspire us to desire something greater. But as we inspire to be greater or better coming into this new year, I pray that our motivations would be pure in all that we desire to do.
that our resolutions and decisions will hold with them opportunities to worship and honor you with pure hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.